to Acts chapter 18. We'll finish up that chapter. We stopped in the middle of it two weeks ago. And we are going to continue into chapter 19 down to verse 10. So I will begin reading uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Remember, we are in Corinth, and uh, that's where Paul is as he's, we're, we're sort of wrapping up this section here. So Acts chapter 18, verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla, excuse me, Achilla and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, "'Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?' And they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading uh, concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. 
Lord, we are so grateful for your word, for all of the things that are before us today, Lord, for all of the things contained in it that are going to speak to us in so many different ways. And so, Lord, we open our hearts and our minds, and we are just ready to receive all that you have. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, in the first half of Acts chapter 18, was in the city of Corinth. And as we talked about last time, Corinth was a a debauched city. It probably would have been very much akin to uh, Las Vegas in our current day, maybe, uh, of course, much worse. Um, There was the, the temple there up on the hill that there were a thousand temple prostitutes that came down every night about dark and went into the city. Uh, the married men were allowed to do whatever they wanted. Um, there were so many things that happened in the city of Corinth. It was such a, a heathen, pagan, worldly city that when this church was born in Corinth, uh, when you read a simple reading, really, of the book of 1 Corinthians, you can see that Paul had a great struggle with this church because it was a church that wasn't a pure church. It was a church that the world had come into, the world had infiltrated that church. And there was more worldliness than godliness in that church. And so Paul had to spend a lot of time in the book of 1 Corinthians dealing with the problems in that church. But we find out today here that there's this man named Apollos who sort of got deployed there to to instruct them, to, to lead them, to teach them. We are not told specifically that he was a pastor in Corinth, but certainly he acted in that capacity. So we come to verse 18, and it said, So Paul still remained a good while. We know that he spent at least 18 months in the city of Corinth. Uh, It says, Then he took his leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria with Priscilla and Aquila, and and they were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. So it would seem at this point that Paul left Silas and Timothy behind in the city as he uh, left Corinth, left them there to sort of uh, deal with the fallout and hopefully try to get the church established. He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. And then as he went to the area of Centria, which is the seaport just a few miles south of the city of Corinth, it says he had his hair cut off there for he had taken a vow. Now, the vow that Paul took was what is known as a Nazarite vow. And if you'd like to look into that more, it's found in Numbers chapter 6. But just to give you a few highlights of what happens when a person takes a Nazarite vow, and by the way, a man or a woman could take a Nazarite vow, it was a vow of consecration. When we read in Numbers chapter 6, verse 2, it says, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, it gives a list of requirements uh, behind that for what's necessary. And then in verse 5, it says, All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord, for he shall be holy. So it would seem that the purpose, the sole purpose of the Nazarite vow was a period of separation and consecration. 
Now, why Paul chose to do that at this particular time, we aren't told. We can only speculate. But given that Paul had uh, been on this sort of ministry, uh, you know, binge, so to speak, he had gone through all of these cities, and then he came to the city of Corinth, uh, one wonders, and certainly some commentators suggested, that maybe he just sort of felt dirty after having being, been in the city of Corinth, and, and that's a strong possibility. But he decided to consecrate himself, and one of the beautiful things about the vow of the Nazarite, uh, it wasn't something that anyone had to do at any particular time, and it was, it was purely voluntary. And so anyone could do it just to say, I want to take a period of time to just sort of focus on the Lord and separate myself to the Lord. And if a person took this vow, as you go back and read Numbers chapter 6, it was a vow of separation and dedication and consecration and holiness. Uh, it says, and I'll just read some of the phrases here, verse 7, his separation to God is on his head. His separation shall be holy to the Lord. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation. And it keeps mentioning his consecrated head, his consecrated head. So the, the shaving of the head was sort of a, a picture you know, have a, you know, back then it wasn't, you know, a thing for guys to shave their heads. It was a, a thing that was an indication that something unique was going on um, in their lives. And it says in verse 18, the hair from his consecrated head should be put on a fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. Um, and so that, that's done, of course, at the tabernacle of meeting. And then uh, as you go and finish it up, this is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. Besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. So Paul took this vow, this Nazarite vow, as he's leaving the area of Corinth and Centria, and he's heading down to Ephesus in verse 19. He came to Ephesus and left them there, that is Priscilla and Aquila, and he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So Paul's heart was always to go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And you may remember here some years earlier, back in Acts chapter 16, when Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. It says there in the beginning of Acts chapter 16, he had wanted to go in, in a certain direction, but the Holy Spirit forbade him then another direction. One of those directions from where he was was to the south into Asia, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. So it would seem that God had a perfect time for when he wanted Paul to enter the city of Ephesus. And that was now at the end of the second journey, he walked into Ephesus he was prevented two years earlier to come into that city, and now the Holy Spirit gave him permission and liberty to preach in this important city. So he came in and he began to reason with the Jews, but notice in verse 20, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, presumably because he wanted to complete the vow of the Nazarite by going there. And so he was sort of on a, on a mission uh, in a hurry to get there. And we believe that this was the, um, the Passover feast that he was trying to get to. So I must keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you again. Notice what he says, 
God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And we've talked about this a number of times now throughout the book of Acts, but it bears repeating. He says here, I will return to you again, God willing. We have to learn to submit our plans to the Lord. We need to allow the Lord to direct our steps, to open and to close doors. And sometimes that can be very frustrating for us, can't it? Because we make our plans and we determine that we're going to do something, but the problem is we didn't invite the Lord into the process. Now, when we read throughout the Old Testament, and we certainly saw this in our men's Bible study in the book of 1 Samuel, when the people of Israel considered the Lord, when they prayed to the Lord and they said, Lord, are you going to to go with us? Do you want us to go and do this thing? If they heard from the Lord, yes, I will be with you and I will go before you, then they did that. But if the Lord said, no, do not go up, then they didn't. But often we read stories where people went up anyway. They violated what the Lord spoke to their hearts. They asked his permission. He said no, and they did it anyway. I'm sure no one in here has ever done anything like that. Asked for permission and then did it anyway. But when we we read, and and the, the scriptures are given for our instruction, when we read that these people violated what God said, the end did not turn out so well for them. And so Paul certainly had been learning this all throughout his life. I I doubt Paul would say to us, if he were here to sort of comment on these things, that, you know, I I perfectly understood the will of God and I always obeyed him perfectly. I, I don't think he would say that, but I think he would say, I always tried to listen for the voice of God. I wanted to hear what he had to say. And he, he learned to say here, I will return to you again, God willing. So he, he wanted to come back. And we'll find out in chapter 19, of course, that God did open that door for him to come back. But he laid down his will in, in just service to the will of God. So he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, remember Caesarea is now back on the coast there, uh, sort of between Syria and Israel. And he landed at Caesarea, and he had gone up and greeted the church. He went down to Antioch. So at that moment in verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, when it says he had gone up and greeted the church, at that point, he actually went to Jerusalem. So he went there to keep the feast, to complete his Nazarite vow. And then it says he went down to Antioch. Whenever uh, someone goes up to Jerusalem in the scriptures, it's always spoken to of going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was not only a city on a hill as it indeed was, but it was also viewed at least in the Jewish mind that when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to the place where God resides. That's where the temple was. And so you were going to the place of spiritual and moral and ethical high ground. And so it was always referred to as going up to Jerusalem. And when you left Jerusalem, you were going down. We are told there that he went down to the church at Antioch. So Paul once again now completes the second missionary journey here in verse 22. He goes back to Antioch, his home base, the church that originally sent him out. So at this point, we believe Paul is pretty much traveling alone 
Uh, he had left uh, Silas and Timothy back in Corinth. Uh, he had met Achilla and Priscilla. He left them in Ephesus on his way back. And now it says in verse 23, after he spent some time there, that is at the church in Antioch, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So verse 23 is the beginning of the third missionary journey, as we call it. Paul always had the heart to go back to those churches that he had been a part of planting and founding, and he wanted to see how they were doing. And why do we need to know this? Why do we need to hear this? Because Paul cared about people. And he loved going back and seeing how they were doing and bringing instruction and bringing encouragement and praying for them. So when it says here in verse 23 that he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples, that's referring to the fact that he was going back and doing what he had done all the way back on the first journey. In order, going to those regions and those cities. Remember, very early in his first journey, he had gone to uh, Iconium and Lystra. And remember, he was stoned and left for dead there. Paul had already gone back there once, and here he's going back there again. No doubt a little gun shy over what could have happened. Remember, as we were looking last week, in chapter 18, while Paul was in Corinth, he became afraid. And the Lord spoke to him back in chapter 18 and verse 9. The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. God comforting Paul, saying, I'm with you. And you can do what you're doing because I'm with you. And you can do what you're doing because I've commanded you to do it. And Paul, of course, had already experienced these difficulties, these hard times in going in the name of the Lord and encountering difficulty. And you see, encountering difficulty is not a sign that you're out of the will of God. Because he encountered much difficulty, didn't he? Remember, again, in chapter 16, they went through the open door that God had given them to go into Macedonia. Macedonia is the region where Philippi was. Philippi was the foremost city. He goes into that city. He finds Lydia and her household and a group of people worshiping, uh, speaks to them. They get saved. He goes into their house. They get baptized. The next day, he and Silas go out walking about the city, ministering, looking for a way to just bring the name of Christ. And remember, there was that, that demon-possessed girl who had the spirit of a python on her. And she was walking behind them saying, these men are the men of the Most High God. And Paul became greatly annoyed at the fact that Satan was giving him publicity, and he didn't like that. And so he cast the demon out. And because that woman was the source of income to her masters. Out of that situation, Paul and Silas got thrown into jail. And remember, as they got thrown into jail, they got beaten severely with rods. And remember, they walked through that open door. They were doing what God called them to do. And as they were doing it, they encountered the difficulty. They encountered the beating for the name of the Lord. And remember that night, the Philippian jailer got saved. As Paul and Silas were chained there, no doubt aching 
from the beating that they had taken and God used their lives, putting them in that situation so it would seem so that that Philippian jailer and all of those prisoners whom we were told in that passage were listening, listening to them singing, listening to them talking. And so God loves to use the lives of his servants, but remember, he will use the lives of his servants the way he wants to. And so Paul no doubt understood this. And I will come back and see you, Ephesians, if God is willing. So now he leaves, heads out on the third journey, apparently alone. Maybe he has someone with him, we're not told. And as he heads out on this journey, we find out in verse 24 that he encounters a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria. What we should know about the city of Alexandria, that Rome, of course, was the foremost city in the world at that point in time. Alexandria was actually the second largest city. It was a city of well over half a million people at that time, and it was the main center of education. Uh, we would think of Alexandria then, as it, t- today if we were thinking about it, we would think of it as maybe like a Harvard or a Yale or a Princeton, you know, the highest school of learning, the best place that you could go to school. One of the unique things about Alexandria is that at that time it also boasted the largest library in the world. There were over 700,000 volumes in that library. Keep in mind, the printing press has not been invented. Those were all handwritten copies. They were original copies. And the second largest library in the world at that time was Ephesus. It had about 400,000, probably many copies of what was in Alexandria, but again, they were copied. So he encounters Apollos at Alexandria. We find that he was an eloquent man and that he was mighty in the scriptures and that he had traveled to Ephesus. So this man, Apollos, Born in Alexandria, he was a Jew. There was a large Jewish, con- Jewish contingent in Alexandria. We find out that it seems that he's a believer. He's believed in the Lord, but we're going to find out in just a moment that he hadn't really heard of Christ. He had only heard of the baptism of John. And so he was an eloquent man, so clearly God had gifted him with the ability of oration to speak to others and He was mighty in the scriptures. That means that he had studied the word of God. Verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So someone in Alexandria had been discipling him. And it says, and being fervent in spirit, and this means that he was somebody who was bubbling over. If we we talked about someone being fervent with anger, that would mean that they were a very angry person. But when someone is fervent in spirit, that means that they had zeal, the right kind of zeal. And it says that he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he had studied the word of God. He loved the Lord. He was in, had been instructed in the way of Lord, and he was instructing others in the way of the Lord. This was a faithful man, but for whatever reason, the word had not quite gotten to him about Jesus. He had only heard of the baptism of John. So he had been instructed, he had been discipled, he was going, he didn't even understand the Great Commission, 
And he was being faithful to, to share the truth that he had with others. So this man was someone who was very rare. Indeed, a person like Apollos would be very rare even in today's society because he cared enough about others that he wanted to explain to them the way of God. He wanted to speak the scriptures to them. So verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And remember when Paul had left Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila there. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue there in Ephesus. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Why? Because he only knew the baptism of John. And the baptism of John, this is this one of two times we'll hear about it this morning, was of course a baptism to repentance. And remember what John was preaching was repent and turn from your sins and turn to the Lord. And in what John preached, he also had said, there is one coming after me who is mightier than I am. He is the Messiah. So John was the forerunner. He was preparing the way of Jesus. And he preached the way of repentance as a way of preparing the hearts of the people to receive the true Messiah. But isn't it interesting that this man, Apollos, who was educated in the the best school in the world, who was bold, who was fervent, who was no doubt knew the scriptures, now was taken aside by these two tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla, and it says there they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And I think what's between verses 26 and 27 is that he received what they had to say. Now, how many times, just think about this for yourself, And I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It certainly has happened to me where someone has sat down with you and said, I need to talk to you about something. But not just about, you know, maybe a relational problem. But in this particular case, they needed to correct this man's doctrine. They needed to show him that you need to understand something. The man that John spoke of, his name is Jesus. He has come. He is the Messiah. He has fulfilled all of those Old Testament prophecies. And so as they took him aside and explained to him the way of God, one of the things that has to be wonderfully apparent to all of us is that he was also, in addition to being fervent in spirit, a gentle and a humble man able to receive the instruction that Aquila and Priscilla brought him. Remember his education. He could have easily been not teachable and he could have easily been unwilling to receive, saying to them, what do you know? You guys don't even have an education. But he was humble enough to receive what they brought to him. Certainly a biblical principle and certainly a New Testament principle of leaders and really of all people is that a person in authority is a person under authority. That means we must always be open and willing to receive what God's word and God's servants, whom he may bring along in our lives at any time, have to say to us. And so when someone brings correction into my life and into your life, just as correction was brought into the life of Apollos, may we have the same kind of response that he had. 
Now notice what he did in verse 27. When he desired to cross to Achaia, Achaia was the region where Corinth was. The brethren wrote there from Ephesus, and, and no doubt Achilla and Priscilla were probably part of that because remember they were with Paul when he passed through Ephesus. The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him when he arrived. So they gave him a letter of recognition. And when he came in, he didn't just come in as some guy who wandered through the door. He had a letter. He had papers. They were signed. It was a letter of encouragement. And it said that he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Now, isn't it interesting, again, that Apollos was immediately useful to the master, to Jesus, even though he had just been corrected. He had just had that gap in his understanding filled in by these two dear saints, and he was immediately useful to Jesus. So as he gets to the church in Corinth, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, verse 28, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, it's interesting that later as Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, listen to this. Paul writing, for when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. So even as Apollos got there, there were people who sort of took a liking to him, and there were some people who, uh, you know, liked Paul, some who liked Apollos, some who may have liked other teachers there. But as Paul wrote, he said, that kind of favoritism among teachers is a sign of carnality. It's a sign of being fleshly. And he says, look, we are all God's servants here bringing the word of God to you. And who you like better is of no significance whatsoever. That you are being instructed in the word of God, that your faith is being built up, that you are growing in Christ. That is what is important. So this man was able by his education and by his zeal and now armed with the information that Jesus was the Messiah, he vigorously refuted the Jews showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So he got it, right? He understood what Priscilla and Achilla had explained to him. Now, when I read about this man, Apollos, one of the things that I think of is that this was a man who was able to both accurately handle God's word and to, as Paul later said, writing to Timothy, to rightly divide the scriptures. I would like to say to you that while Apollos was certainly a man who was educated and fervent and had certainly a calling and a gifting, that just because he had it, and I may not be an Apollos, I may not be an Apostle Paul, that we all should endeavor to learn the word of God, to understand the word of God, so that we also can speak to those who don't believe. You know, we encounter people all the time, don't we? 
in our workplaces, in our social settings, people who don't believe in Christ or people who have misguided understandings, uh, people who think God's views of sexuality are a certain way versus what the scriptures say. Uh, We run into these kinds of things all the time. But what we do is we go to the Bible first and we, we look it up. And when we encounter someone who has these questions, let me just encourage you to please pray about it and go to the scriptures and say, Lord, what do your scriptures have to say about this topic? And take that as an opportunity, as an open door to learn what God has to say about those topics. Study up. Uh, If you need to, read some books. I can give you one website in particular that I highly recommend. It's actually called Always Be Ready. Uh, I think it's .com. Could be .org. I think it's alwaysbeready.com. But that website, there's a man there who, uh, he's a Calvary Chapel guy who put this together probably 20 years ago. But he's been developing answers, you know, a way to be uh, able to respond to people who have questions and who have issues. He's a a great resource, but what he's going to give you for the most part is what do the scriptures have to say about these topics? So I think we want to be prepared like Apollos to refute and to exhort and to correct. Now in verse uh, chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus and it we find out in verse 1, and it happened. So God did allow him to come back. He opened that door. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, as Paul comes into Ephesus, keep in mind, Ephesus is a very large city, well over 400,000 people. It also is a large city. And as he comes in, he isn't necessarily coming to the same disciples or the same believers that he had encountered the first time or the people that Aquila and Priscilla had ministered to. He seems to find, as we find out here, that there were about 12 uh, people whom he encountered. Um, And so he comes into the upper regions, he found some disciples, and he said to them in verse 2, "'Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?' And so they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So let's take a moment and talk about this. The scriptures are abundantly clear, and I I can point you to many places, but uh, the letter to the Ephesians chapter 1 is a great one where it talks about the fact that when we as believers, when we believe in Christ, Immediately at salvation, we are given the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit comes to indwell our lives. And I don't, I don't believe in any way that he's talking here about um, the indwelling of the Spirit, because the Scriptures, again, I believe are very clear about that. But in keeping with what we've been studying in the book of Acts, <clears throat> he said, uh, actually, I think the New King James gets, makes this, excuse me, the King James makes this a little bit clearer in that it says, um, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And remember, as we've been going through from Acts chapter 1 all the way through to this point, that it seems to point to the fact that there was a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit where He came upon them. We'll get to that in just a moment. 
but I wanted just to continue to work through this. So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. They had heard nothing about the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? Assuming that as believers, they had been baptized, meaning water baptism, as well as the baptism of the Spirit. And so they said into John's baptism. So now we have yet another group of people who had heard of the Lord, but they had only heard of John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So Paul now explaining to them the same thing that Priscilla and Achilla had had, uh, explained to Apollos, saying that there was a baptism of repentance, but that was not the the baptism that they had actually, what they had received, excuse me, was not the baptism of Jesus Christ. And so he begins to explain this to them. And it says in verse five, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it would seem that they were baptized a second time here, this time. And remember going back all the way to the Great Commission, Jesus said, In Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then remember in Acts chapter four, we find these words recorded at the beginning of the story. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Paul had explained this to them. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I believe as as that's spoken there, it was likely that Paul baptized them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then when he had baptized them in verse six, it says, when Paul had laid hands on them. Remember, this has happened multiple times as we have been going through this study in the book of Acts. Uh, the disciples would come. Uh, Peter, Peter and John, they, uh, in Acts chapter eight, you know, they went to where Philip had been ministering And they laid their hands on people and they received the Holy Spirit. So when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And that is the word hapi. And let me take a moment just to kind of go back through this that we talked about at the beginning, that there are three Greek prepositions used with, uh, to explain our relationship with the Holy Spirit. The first one is the word para, which means alongside. And when Jesus was talking about in John 14, 15, and 16, that the Spirit will come alongside you and he will be your helper. The helper means he would come and be alongside you. And then Jesus said he would come and take up residence inside you or in you, the Greek preposition en. And then he said, on the day of Pentecost and subsequent to that, the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And that is this Greek preposition, hapi. And that is the word used here when he says in verse six, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So they had the Holy Spirit at 
salvation, just like all believers receive the Spirit as a part of receiving Christ. But here the Holy Spirit came upon them, and in this situation, as was so common in those days, as the Spirit came upon them, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. So in John chapter 14, I'm just going to read these scriptures to you, uh, verse 15 through 17, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you uh, forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. With is para, in is inside. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Therefore they had come together. They asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that was a command given to the disciples by Jesus. But that is something that they have perpetuated, even as Paul is doing here, where the Spirit uh, by their hands is coming upon people so that they may do the works of God. You know, the Holy Spirit is so instrumental in our lives. I'm just going to share a few scriptures with you that illustrate the importance of the work of the Spirit. And certainly we could do a whole couple of Bible studies alone just on this. In Acts chapter 5, it says, And we are witnesses, Acts chapter 5, verse 32, And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Meaning that when we are doing things for the Lord, just as those disciples were doing, that the Holy Spirit was bearing witness to the things that they were doing and saying. And so the Spirit, it says, whom God has given to those who obey him. So the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's found in Romans chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, verse 14, now the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This is the coming upon. For as yet he had fallen upon Hapi, none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So that's Acts chapter 8, 15 through 17. Jesus said, just to help us have context here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 17, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Talking about the teaching of who Jesus was, the teaching of the Messiah, the gospel, but also Uh, On the day of Pentecost, remember when the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. As Peter stood up to speak, what did he quote? He quoted from Joel chapter 2, saying that the Lord said, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit upon my people. And he was using that scripture to explain what was happening there on that day. And thus, that is part of the new wine that the Lord is pouring out on his church. And then in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, If you then, being evil... 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Not speaking of the indwelling, but speaking of the coming upon of the Spirit. Coming back to Acts 19, verse 7, now the men were about 12 in all. And it says in verse 8, then he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for about three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So as Paul has now come back to Ephesus, remember he had spent about 18 months in Corinth. We find that here he's already now spent three months um, in Ephesus. And as we go through the rest of this chapter, the next time we get together to finish chapter 19, we're going to find out that Paul spent three full years in the city of Ephesus. So here in verse 9, but when some were hardened, these were some of the people he was reasoning with in the synagogues, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, which was one of the, the names that many people used in that day to refer to the church, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he, that is Paul, departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So it would seem that Paul, during that part of the day, that was the siesta or the middle or the hot, hot part of the day, from 11 to about 3 or 4 in the afternoon, when everything was shut down, Paul was using this school as a place to gather the disciples away from those who were hardened and who did not believe and who spoke evil of the way so that they wouldn't be confused and continually uh, drawn away from the faith, but rather uh, to get them together and to teach them in a, in a more concentrated setting uh, the truth of God's word. So imagine now, it says for uh, some period of time uh, here in verse 10, and this continued for two years. So they didn't have the calendars that we have. Okay, here's the school year. Here's the academic year. For two years, Paul took these disciples aside and he explained to them the scriptures. Now, when we just going back a little bit, when Paul went through in chapter 17, where he, where he went through Thessalonica and he was there for three weeks. And then we read the letter that he wrote to them, the amount of truth that Paul communicated in three weeks to the Thessalonians was amazing. Imagine having two years with the apostle Paul as he taught them. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So as we draw this to a close this morning, certainly one of the things we want to emphasize is this issue of baptism. When a person is, believes in Christ, uh, it is not necessary to be baptized in order to be saved. But we are to be baptized as a matter of command in response to salvation. In other words, being baptized, and this means being baptized in water. When we are baptized, we are indicating to the Lord, as well as to those witnesses who see us get baptized, that we have now decided to follow Jesus. And there's the old hymn that we, we sing. Sometimes we've done sort of a remake of it. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. So being baptized in water in front of others 
is a way that the Lord has desired that we indicate to others that we are now followers of his. As we uh, close this out, just flip over a few pages to Romans chapter 6. And honestly, this is the passage we usually read when we uh, baptize people. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So when we are baptized, as we go down underneath those baptismal waters, we are indicating, much as this indicates here, that we were buried with him through baptism. Our old self, our old man, was put to death by the power of the cross. And as we are being brought up out of those waters, those waters have uh, washed us and cleansed us and refreshed us. And they are an indication that we are, as we are raised up in verse 4, by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in the newness of life. We are now saying by witness as we come up out of those waters that we now want to follow Jesus. And that's our choice. It's our decision. And it says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be together in the likeness of his resurrection. As we have come up out of the waters, that is also a symbol of the resurrection of Jesus. And that resurrection is being transferred to us. And then later Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about this whole thing, saying, one day we will be resurrected. If we die physically, we will receive a resurrection body. So the baptism is a picture It's a picture that we want to follow Jesus. It's a picture that we've dedicated our life to him and that we now see our identity as being in Christ. So water baptism is important. That doesn't mean if you never got baptized that you're not saved. But you see, being baptized is an act of obedience. It's saying, I want to follow Jesus. In just a few weeks, on September 11th, we're actually going to have sort of our annual a summer picnic and uh, just time together. And so when we do that, we like to set up a pool and have a time of baptism for people. And that's either for people who have recently believed in Christ, or maybe you've never uh, been baptized. Maybe you've believed, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but maybe you've never been baptized. It's a great time. It's also a great time to invite friends and family. Because when friends and family, especially people who don't know Christ, witness someone being baptized, this is not something that's normally done, right? We don't see people out on street corners baptizing people. So when we do this, it's a witness to them as much as it is to the the believing body of Christ. It's also a witness to those who do not know Christ. And what easier and better way to preach the gospel than for you to be baptized and allow your friends and family to see it and to witness it. It's a wonderful thing. And so we'd encourage you that in the time leading up to uh, that time on September 11th when we will gather together, maybe be praying about that. And uh, if you know someone who needs to be baptized, you know, they don't have to come to this church. There's no requirements for that. 
We just want to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who believe in Christ and encourage them to follow after them, follow after him with their whole heart. So Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for all that you've spoken to us. And God, you are so good. And Lord, just as these people here responded in Ephesus when Paul came and he spoke to them, may our hearts be responsive, just as Apollos was responsive when Achilla and Priscilla spoke to him. May our hearts be responsive to the truth of your word. May we desire to lay aside the old things, the old life. And as Paul said to the Philippian church, he said, this one thing I do, I forget the things that are behind. And I press forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Lord, if there are any listening today or any here who have never trusted in the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, may they do so right now. And just understand that you love them and that you came and died for the forgiveness of sin and to be able to bring us to the Father that we might be made acceptable and whole before him. And that by believing in and receiving Jesus, we are now free to enter the presence of God, the kingdom of God. And we have to do nothing other than believe. And your word is so clear, Lord. How shall they hear unless someone tells them? Lord, right now they're being told. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so, Lord, work your work in the hearts of your people. And we pray, Lord, in a few weeks that you would bring people who need to be baptized and who need to take that step of faith and obedience in following you, Jesus. And just like Paul took that Nazarite vow, may we, in a sense, Lord, sort of take that vow through baptism of saying, I will follow Jesus and I will not turn back. So Lord, right now as we close, would you just fill us with your love? Would you baptize us afresh and anew in your spirit? Would you fill us, Lord? And as Jesus, you said in John's gospel, that we might have rivers of living water coming forth from our being as evidence that we know you, that we love you, that we're connected to you. And Lord, may our body, may our, our temple be a vessel for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.